0: I think Alexander Calder has a, a special place at the Hirshhorn because um, he's one of the artists whose works we have collected in depth. We have 47 works by Calder ranging from the large stable that's out front right now to some of the mobiles you see in here and also some works on paper. And we were lucky enough to get 47 works mostly through the generosity of Joseph Hirschhorn, who many of you probably know was the museum's founding donor. Hirschhorn was uh, n- most important as a collector because he collected artists in depth, especially the works he considered by artists who were the most important artists, and, and Calder is probably one of the most important sculptors of the 20th century. Um, the works that we have from Hirshhorn uh, pretty much cover almost all of Calder's career, from some of his earliest uh, whimsical works in the 1920s to uh, some of the, the works in the 1970s. Um, Calder was a really fascinating sculptor because he worked in such a range of media. Um, he worked in wood, he worked in sheet metal, he worked in wire, he used scraps of fabric in a lot of his pieces, And what brings together all of these works was um, really a fascination in seeing how abstract form was transformed by movement and shifts in scale. Now, I have to kind of confess something. For the longest time, I was not a fan of Alexander Calder. As you know, he's probably one of the most popular and probably one of the more accessible abstract sculptors of the 20th century. And for me, I hadn't really come to appreciate what made him interesting, but as Ryan said, I worked on the reinstallation of Calder's Circus, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, um, when I was at the Whitney, and it also involved installing a gallery of works, um, giving an overview of his career, much as, as we have here at the Hirschhorn. And, For me, what is interesting about Alexander Calder is he's someone who was really grounded by the principles of European modernism. People like Mondrian, who you can see, it's actually a Bolotowski out that way, but the principles of geometric abstraction that were coming out of of Europe, but then what he did is he combined them with um, a real understanding of of engineering and as well as a sense of American ingenuity and a real keen wit. So that to me is what makes Calder interesting. So what I thought I would do is kind of do an overview today and just kind of work through some of the pieces here in the gallery and just talk about kind of the progression of Calder's. And like I said, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Um, Calder was born in 1898 in Philadelphia. He came from a family of artists. His um, mother was a portrait painter, and both his father and grandfather were very important figurative sculptors, actually, in the the 19th century. Calder, however, decided that he didn't want to be an artist and instead was an engineer. Actually completed uh, a BS in engineering in New Jersey and began work as an engineer. But by 1922, he had decided that engineering was really not for him, so he began to take drawing classes at the Art Student's League. And there he was working under some of the ashcan painters, such as John Sloan and um, Guy Pendebois. What's interesting about the ashcan painters in the 1920s is they were really interested in kind of opening up or showing people kind of the underside of of, of life in New York City. It wasn't about abstraction. It wasn't about kind of modern forms. It was really about much more figurative, realistic paintings. And so Calder completed um, several classes under them and actually got a job working as an illustrator um, at a gazette in New York City. And one of the things that he was sent to cover was the um, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which came to Madison Square Garden. And he spent several nights at Madison Square Garden. And this became a really pivotal event to him, because he had never been to the circus, and the spectacle of it, and the colors, and all of the activity really would impact him, and I think that you can see the influence of the circus through all of his work, um, even through into the 1970s. In 1926, Calder went to Paris, which is what you did when you were an artist um, in New York in the 1920s. Paris was still, even though um, many artists such as uh, Matisse or Picasso were really not still at the prime of their careers, Paris is where all the Americans went to learn about European modernism and to really kind of find out what was going on. Calder went there and immediately fell under the sway of, as I said, artists such as Mondrian and the Surrealists such as Miro, whose works you can see in that gallery um, over to my right. And what he started doing was the first project he did was, was what became known as the Calder Circus. And what he did is he took little pieces of wire and crafted them into little figures and actually made outfits for them and accessories. So for the lion tamer he made a giant hoop for the lions to run through, he made, he made um, the actual acrobats, he made the animals. And what he would do is he packed them into all of these little um, suitcases and he would bring them out and cre- actually do a performance complete with a, um, a record player going in the background and he would have the music and he would play all of the various parts to it. And it sounds kind of very childish, but what's interesting about Calder was his ability really to kind of take what we to take things that we appreciate as children and transform them into adult events. And I think the circus really kind of embodies that idea. And, and for the next four years, between 1926 and 1930, Calder became renowned on both sides of the Atlantic, both among the avant-garde and among the public for these performances of the circus. But the event that was really pivotal in, in Calder's career is he, in 1930, he was invited to the studio of um, Piet Mondrian, probably the great abstract painter living in Paris at the time. Um, Mondrian was most known for these very spare, abstract, geometric paintings. And when Calder went to go visit Mondrian, he was struck by these works. But what interested him most was thinking about the idea of what would happen if these paintings moved. And so he actually went to his studio that day, apparently, and went home and started thinking about how can I make these, these paintings move. And that's really what he explored for the, almost the next 50 years of his life, was what would happen if you took a Mondrian painting, which is basically geometric forms in bold, mostly primary colors, and made them move. And, and you can see that, again, throughout the entire gallery. And one of the first things he started doing was, was making these little kinetic um, uh, sculptures, which were wire and wood and scrap metal, which are the materials he would again use for the rest of his career, and he would make them move using a hand crank. And um, Marcel Duchamp, the great avant-garde artist at the time, saw them and he called them mobiles. And so what's so fascinating to me about Calder is these mobiles that we all take for granted in our lives. My son has one above his crib. You know, these are actually things that were avant-garde and and have only been around since approximately 1930. And so this is an early piece by um, Calder. This is uh, Form Against Yellow, and it's from 1936, and it kind of gives you an idea about what Calder was doing at the beginning of his experimentation. As you can see, it's a hybrid piece. It's um, a painted piece of wood, and in front of it is um, hung uh, a piece of sheet metal that's, that's black, and on the other side, it's actually white, and it's got this white form going through it. It also shows you the influences of, of, of living in Paris for Calder. On one hand, you can see that I think that really kind of yellow uh, wooden panel is, is kind of exemplary of the kind of ideas that Mondrian was working through. At the same time, you have a biomorphic form that was really kind of the hallmark of the Surrealists at the period. But what makes it interesting is the idea of thinking about what would happen if it actually moved. And again, you can see he's shifted from creating works that moved. Um, using hand cranks to rely on actually the currents and um, the airstream or actually movement in the gallery to make the works move. And again, that would become the hallmark of um, Calder's career. And I think what's also fun about this piece is actually that idea of fun. You never lose that in Calder's work. His works always seem to kind of have this spirit of fun and enthusiasm. On one hand, they're very carefully constructed. It took quite a bit of time and kind of um, experimentation with weights and balances. There's this real interest in formal properties, how color and line move through space, but then there's always this sense of fun grounding the pieces as well. Um, this is an untitled work from 1942, and you can see kind of a shift in this piece of um, how his imagery was, was, was moving along. There's still a real interest in surrealism. At the same time, you can th- some of these forms begin to look a little bit more, more molecular, or these little um, globes and orbs at the top begin to su- suggest constellations of the galaxy. Even though Calder, for the most part, was, an, was considered himself to be an abstract sculptor, I think there are a lot of references, um, whether they be obvious or not, to science, to the living world, whether it be botany or um, astronomy or um, other sciences, they're always kind of hidden in, in, in Calder's work. And it's that kind of balance between representation and abstraction, it's attention through much of his work. This is a work from 1943. It's called um, Vertical uh, Constellation with Yellow Bone. This was a new form for um, Calder. What happened in the 1940s with the war, he was forced to kind of change materials. He had been using sheet metal in the 1930s, um, and he really appreciated that material. It would become his primary material again after the war. But with the lack of availability of sheet metal, he shifted to wood. And this is what he began creating. And, and the constellations, for the most part, are characterized by being small hand-carved pieces of wood. Sometimes they're polychrome and painted sometimes they aren't and they are held together and arranged in these kind of interesting forms by stiff steel wires which also you can see are either painted or not on one hand, again, you can kind of see this interest in astronomy, the ideas of the solar systems. Clearly, the word constellation comes from the, the solar systems. At the same time, I think you see the circus playing into this as well. There's a real sense of kind of the fun, the activity, acrobats, all the different things happening in three, in three rings are kind of conveyed by the kind of way he's, he's juxtaposed these forms together. At the same time, there's that interest in surrealism continues to hold. And I think that's another thing about Calder is There are certain tenets in his work which begin to appear and reappear and appear and reappear at different points in his career but they're always really pretty steady there. He's always innovating but he's always relying on basically the ideas of Mondrian and the Surrealists and again by putting in this piece that's called The the Wooden Bone along with all these other abstract forms it's again this kind of sense of surrealism. Um, These two sculptures here which are later works um, This over here is called uh, Stable Mobile and this one, uh, Stable Mobile Red Lily from 1947 and Red Cascade from 1953. Here you can see where um, Calder is really kind of trying to challenge the idea that a sculpture has to not move. What he's trying to do is he's trying to take the ideas of the mobile, which we'll talk about in a second but with those hanging pieces, but the idea is, is what happens to a sculpture if it actually can move. What's fascinating about these pieces is you can see how they're getting increasingly complex from some of the earlier works. You've gone from that one single hanging piece and a a piece there with other pieces put into them to the constellations which were very stiff wires. But here the pieces are getting increasingly complicated in, in the ways that they're balanced and counterbalanced and also in the ways that they've moved. And I mean, I'll probably get shot by security for this, but I would really encourage you to, when you get near a calder, is to make a little current movement, don't touch them, don't blow on them, but if you make movement, Okay, Valerie said I could touch one, but I'm not actually going to do that. Valerie's the senior curator of of modern art here, and she said I could touch one, but I'm a little bit fearful. You can see how every single piece here can pivot in different ways, and so a lot of the pieces can move 180 degrees, and as they're all moving together, there's a real complexity here in terms of the weights, and Calder, when he was making these pieces, would sit down and draw out the forms on a sheet of paper or using some scrap metal, but then what he would do is when he was actually making the final piece, it would be a very, very careful balance of you know, putting a piece here and seeing how it affects every other part of the sculpture. What's also interesting, I think there's an interesting um, shift between these two pieces, between 1947 and 1953, is um, Calder's moved off of the pedestal. This work, as well as um, the constellation, both works are sculptures and they're displayed on a pedestal, but here you can see Calder's decided that he no longer needs a pedestal and he's kind of trying to rethink the idea of what is the basis of a sculpture and how does the sculpture relate to the space around it and most importantly the idea that a sculpture could rest directly onto the ground. Um, Also I think what's what's interesting about these pieces is is there's this real clarity of form and color and you as I was talking about the complexity of, of mechanically how they work and how all of the different pieces relate to one another. What holds the pieces together, I think, is this real sense of very simple forms, circles, triangles, little kind of you know, biomorphic forms in primary colors or limiting the color spectrum. And I think with Calder, he knew to not. Um, go too far in terms of the range of colors that he used. I think if you did this piece for one we had a range like a rainbow hue of colors between that and the kind of complica- complications involved in the movement the piece wouldn't function so well. Again it's that balance between very simple forms and very kind of complicated counterweights and movements that makes the pieces work. These two mobiles hanging from the top are um, probably what Calder is most uh, recognized for. This one's from um, 1953 and this one's from 1958 if I'm not mistaken. I actually find this one a little bit more interesting. The large one is, is interesting just because of the scale and, and, the, and the black forms, which to me suggest a set of birds you know, flying north the, flying south for the winter. But I think this one in terms of the way it was actually put together is interesting because you can see that Calder's actually starting to put holes in some of the, um, in some of the pieces. Um, the white piece here and one of the small black pieces, they each um, have been punctured and, 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 and pieces have been taken out. And on one hand, formally, I think it works because of the shapes of the of the holes actually echo the other forms in the, um, in the mobile. On the other hand, they also work mechanically because um, what, by punching holes in that large white piece, he allows, oops, excuse me, that's actually my bracelet falling now. Um, he allows uh, air to flow through and that allows the piece to actually take on more movement. And again, it's that idea in Calder's work that Things function formally, and then things function mechanically, and there's always that balance between the two of them. And then, as, you, as I said, this is a larger piece. And as Calder, as Calder got um, older and really became more experienced working with sheet metal, he became more and more bold with these pieces um, in terms of the scale. And if you guys, I'm sure you've been over to the National Gallery, you can see they're absolutely fa- fabulous. I think it's a, a piece that's um, in the East Wing in the in the lobby, which is, is just extraordinary in its size. But again no matter the size of the works for Calder this again the same principles are always at work and he's just always kind of tweaking through and it's that childhood fascination with form and color and shape and really just trying to think about again what happens if you take an abstract form and shift it in scale and make it move. Finally this is um, a late work uh, it's from 1974 and it's called Critter Mobile Top and I would never do this but if you tap on this the whole top will begin to kind of tilt, go back and forth. This is a bit like the um, Constellation piece from the 1940s in that it looks like it's a piece that doesn't actually move but if there are vibrations in the move in the in the room, if someone walks through with really heavy feet, both of these pieces will actually begin to move. Even the piece with the um, made of wires, because it reacts to the air around it. This is actually, I think, a return at the end of Calder's career to some of the ideas he was working through at the beginning. Um, if you think about it, the circus with, with all those little wire creatures. This is just one worked through in sheet metal. At that time, um, when he was working on the circus, Calder was also creating a lot of portraits out of wire and thinking about how you could how a single line could could be used to create a three-dimensional drawing in space. And I think this is interesting just taking a more modern material such as sheet metal and working through some of those ideas at the end of his career. So I've tried to convey, like what I said, what I think is interesting about Calder. Um, as I said, I was very skeptical for mev- many years and because he was, he, and, and is generally beloved and is, is generally very accessible because of the colors he uses and the, and the kind of fascination with movement. Um, I, I was, like I said, I was very skeptical, but now I think there's a real appreciation, and there's a complexity, and there's also a real kind of consistency in his work, which, which I find really fascinating.